On Saturday 21st of March 1903, Sultan Alam was found inside a barn adjacent to the Junction Hotel in the Victorian town of Miner's Rest. Sultan Alam was the business name of Mahadeen, an Indian hawker who had been in Australia for about eight years. Newspapers reported that when found, his body was still warm to the touch. Only a few months later, in August 1903, the inquiry into his death and the mystery surrounding it appeared to be solved and all but neatly wrapped up. But was it? When I was researching this story, I got the feeling that Dungy wanted to close his case. Well, this is the thing, like, how many people would have known he was sleeping in the barn? Family. It was the family and the lodger. Would have yeah, that fellow guy, yeah. yeah. I don't think they were really interested. Who really cared? No relatives knocking on their doors, no letters to the editor, nothing like that happening. No, I, 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 can, I can take that with a big dose of cynicism. Who were these young Indian men, like Sultan Alam, eking out a living travelling from town to town across Australia, selling trinkets, treasures and everyday wares? How exactly had the police gone about investigating this murder? And did they get it right? Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. Rest is a suburb of the Victorian city of Ballarat, but in 1903 it was a separate town. In that year's edition of the Australian Handbook, Miners Rest was described as a postal township with a population of only 326 people and located 83 and a quarter miles west-northwest of Melbourne. The Handbook also recorded that the town had five churches, a state school, a police station, a public hall, an adjoining racecourse, the Dowling Forest, and had a mechanics institute with a library of over 900 volumes. It also had two hotels, the Derby and the Junction, and it's to the latter, the Junction Hotel, that the Hawker Sultan Alam sought respite for the evening. We do, like, the tax for the tax office. Oh, the tax okay. office pays tax, and we make sure the tax office pays the right amount of tax. Oh, that's so... It's like Inception. <laughs> yeah. We first heard about this case from Mark Greeley, Mark works for the ATO, the Australian Tax Office, but he also runs a historical research business called Archival Access. Do they know about all the, the fun things that you do? Oh, yeah, a couple of people do. Actually, it was really handy. My director, so my boss's boss, is just starting to do a family history. Mm. So I'm, oh, I'm so you tell getting, getting that. I've given him my business card. I'm like, oh, you'd be interested to know. Let me know. <laughs> so I'm like... If she doesn't ever ask me to do something, I've got to make sure I do it and do it well. Although she'd be like, yeah, he's good at research, but he's a rubbish accountant or something. Yeah. Mark was the one who first came across and shared this story with us, and Lee and I were instantly intrigued. So Sultan Malin was, a, was an Indian hawker, um, and for those who haven't heard the term before, that's just like a travelling salesman, a, a peddler. They'd, they'd go around selling their, their wares. Sultan Alam was only 20 years of age when he left Punjab, then a northern province of British India. He was said to be a sober, frugal man, quiet, inoffensive and good at what he did. At the time, he was doing his trade around Ballarat um, and for one reason or another, he made the journey from Ballarat up to Miner's Rest, a 15k uh, walk uh, northwest uh, of, of Ballarat. Um, he got there, he was tired, it was quite a, a long journey, he was in need of accommodation. So he arrived at the Junction Hotel and, and asked the owner, Mrs Pollock, if he could uh, board in the, in the barn that was at the back of the hotel for the evening. Mrs Pollock offered him some hot water for making tea and he also purchased some, some bread and some milk um, from, from her daughter and then he retired for the night in the barn. According to our sources, at about 10pm that Friday night, Sultan Alam had settled in for the evening. At 6am the following morning, members of the Pollock family had begun to stir. James Pollock, the, the son, a 12-year-old, um, of the owner of the hotel, went to check on him, put his head in the barn, he was still asleep. He walked outside and thought we'd try and rouse him, and he started throwing some stones on top of the barn. Didn't get a response. It wasn't until a couple of hours later that the alarm was raised. 
James Pollock told his mother Sarah that the hawkers seemed unresponsive and that he, along with Cornelius Fallahay, a boarder at the hotel, went into the barn to check on his condition. They found Sultan Alam dead, lying in a pool of his own blood with a large wound to the back of his head. Okay, wow. Are they crimson rosellas? So beautiful. That's my favourite bird. Hands down favourite bird. Hands down favourite bird. I have, that's the tattoo on my thigh is crimson rosella. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen your thigh. <laughs> yep. We wanted to know more about Indian hawkers, so our sand engineer Christian and I made a trip to the outer Melbourne suburb of Belgrave, surrounded by natural rainforest and home to plenty of birds and other wildlife. Here we are, the Dean's house. Hello, hi, made it. Did you ring the bell? Hanitha Dean is an author who writes narrative non-fiction. Hanitha turned to writing full-time after her first novel received a New South Wales Premier's Literary Prize. But prior to this, Hanitha held a number of high-profile positions, including with the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. Hanitha Dean and Sultan Alam, whose real name, remember, is Maha Dean, have even more in common than simply sharing the same surname. Mm. So it's definitely in the in the blood. In the genes. Yeah, I in the genes. I've got DNA, but that's turned me into a consumer, I think, rather than a seller. <laughs> Both of Hanifa's grandfathers came out from what is today Pakistan in the 1890s. The discovery that her father, who had been born in Australia in 1905, had crossed the countryside with a horse and cart selling wares was somewhat accidental. I was searching through my dad's papers, being playing my usual sticky beak role, and I found an old notebook. He had been a hawker for a short time in the 1930s during the Depression um, in uh, the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, and I came across this little notebook, beautiful handwriting, and uh, he'd written it down the 4th of November 1931. Is it Kilmarnie? Is that how you pronounce it? Second house from the school. Bought one tin of curry powder, paid one and sixpence, balance sixpence. Another sale. Sold Mrs Jones, the 23rd of September 1931, two pairs of sheeting, 17 shillings, two pairs of pillow slips, four and sixpence. After a stint of hawking in Victoria, Hanifa's family was eventually to settle in the mining town of Kalgoorlie, on the other side of the country in Western Australia. He was born here in 1905, then went back to India and didn't come out again until about 1926 uh, and then married my mother in the 1930s. Uh, they finally went back to Kalgoorlie and started life as a herbalist, gave up the hawking. Um, then um, he never went back home until the early 1960s. And I often used to wonder why and I think he wanted to show that he'd made it good. Hawkers came from a tradition in India where um, people went around hawking from village to village. There weren't shops, only in some of the big cities and so on. So this, this was a tradition that found a second home in Australia, in Victoria. It found a second home here very easily, very naturally. <laughs> Hawkers had come in the wake of the Cameliers who arrived in Australia around the 1860s from parts of present-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Egypt, Persia and Turkey. The camels provided mass transport as they were one of the few working animals who could withstand the harsh Australian outback. But most Cameliers didn't hang around long. Some of them stayed, but many of them had made their money, their contracts had finished, so they went back home. And they went home and they sat in the villages and, um, of course, by then they were big men. They came home with money, they were able to buy a little bit of land and they went from village to village and told the, the young men about these strange people over here with the pale faces and yellow hair and blue eyes, telling them uh, that you could make money here and it was a wonderful country and you could make the money, work hard and come back home and settle down again. 
While hawkers were lumped together by Anglo-Australians as Indians, Hindus or Syrians, they came from many different parts of subcontinental Asia and the Middle East. Taking only a few belongings with them, these young men would usually journey solo, leaving behind their relatives and if they were married, their brides. And yes, it appears they were mostly men, although I've come across at least one newspaper article about a Syrian female hawker from the 1930s. On arrival, the Indians met up with Muslim men already established in Australia. The chain of credit arrangements were amazing, that you had the large warehouses in the cities who were very happy to supply the Indian wholesalers, the more educated men who could speak English, and um, they in turn gave advice to these hawkers, these young, largely non-English speaking young men who came out, gave them credit arrangements, gave them advice, told them the ways to go, how to behave, and gave them credit. Off they went, and they extended the hand of credit to their customers. So you had this long chain of credit arrangements, and it might take a, a family, a woman, maybe six months, 10 months to pay off a bill of five shillings and threepence for a few articles, a packet of needles, a baby singlet, a pair of baby's boots. It was indeed a service, a much needed service for isolated farmers living in remote areas. The country towns of that time were, um, were small isolated, they themselves had small shops, etc. And I doubt whether they were going to give all the credit arrangements that the hawkers were so willing to oblige people with. Some of the uh, farmers made the hawkers feel very welcome. Some did not. And uh, I spoke to a, an old hawker many, many years ago, and he told me that uh, you could soon tell who liked you and who didn't like you. They wouldn't let you camp on their land. They never invited you in for a cup of tea or something like that. By their own account, the publican family, the Pollocks, had been friendly and accommodating to the young stranger who had arrived seeking shelter. But someone had done something terrible to Sultan Alam, and it was the job of the police to find out who did it. An examination of the corpse showed that Alam was killed in his sleep by a terrible blow behind the left ear with the back of the axe, which made a gaping wound extending to the brain. Death was apparently instantaneous, as there was no indications of a struggle. A lady's pocket handkerchief stained with blood was found midway between the spot where the body lay and the door of the stable. The Chronicle, Saturday 28th of March, 1903. Detective Sergeant Daniel Dungy, who had been assigned to the case, arrived from Melbourne. Over the years, Dungy had built a stellar reputation. The Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police had awarded Dungy a commendation for his work in solving the murder of Minnie Hall, which took place in the town of Bendigo. The convicted man, Charles John Hall, who was Minnie's husband, was the last person to be hanged at Sandhurst Jail. The police are at a loss to understand the motive for the crime, and so far... They've been working in the dark in their endeavours to get a clue to the crime. The deceased man's pack was open and the goods fully exposed, but in the absence of any knowledge as to his belongings, it is impossible to state whether anything has been stolen. Probably he carried his nightshirt in the pack and neglected to tie up the bundle after removing the garment. A search for money by the police was fruitless, but it is understood that his possessions were extremely scanty. He was known to be a poor man and when in Ballarat on Friday morning, could only manage to purchase four shillings worth of goods from Mr Wolf Flegeltab, warehouseman. It is probable, therefore, that the three pence halfpenny he paid Mrs Pollock was the last of his money. The Argus, Monday 29th of March, 1903. There seemed to be more questions than answers. However, one thing the police did know was that the axe, the apparent murder weapon, hadn't been brought into the vicinity of the barn but had been taken from a woodpile in the yard of the hotel. Sultan Alam's body was transported to the morgue and the coroner's inquest would be held the following day. Perhaps the most obvious theory is that this was a crime of opportunity. 
a robbery. There are certainly dangers to the hawking profession, often travelling alone over long distances, being seen as an easy target. Um, those with horses and wagons, they had to keep an eye on as well while they, you know, slept at night. I know of a few hawkers who frequented my hometown of Wodonga at various times. Being a good spot right on the river, quite a few would flock there each year to renew their licences at the Wodonga Courthouse. One of these men um, who I have read about was uh, a hawker by the name of Pola Singh. Um, and while I've never read about him being assaulted or attacked, um, theft from hawkers' wagons and from their person was quite quite common, it would seem. And I did find a number of uh, mentions of, of Pola Singh um, appearing as a plaintiff in court cases um, in the magistrate's court um, for theft of goods from his wagon. So as Mark just explained, hawkers could be a somewhat easy target. And notably, Emily Pollock, the publican, had mentioned that the barn was frequently used by travellers as a place to crash. So had someone, knowing this, chanced upon the sleeping hawker? But who might have been tempted? A person out of work or a bit down on their luck, perhaps? A gambling man? For the last two months, Thomas Clark had been sleeping in an open buggy in the sales yard at Miner's Rest. In between looking for employment, he liked to try his hand at betting on the horses and Dowling Forest Racetrack was just nearby. At the inquest, Thomas Clark gave evidence of his whereabouts on the Friday night. Gambling at the racetrack, he'd lost three bets and had broken even on another. He then left the course and at about 5.30pm stopped by the Joneses Hotel where he spoke to a few people about looking for work. He then left and went to another pub, Kane's Hotel, and played a game of ring toss. At about 10.30 or 11pm, he left and went to visit the Morgans, a family he was friendly with, but saw all the lights were off at home. He then started walking up the main road towards Ballarat. According to Clark, he had left about an hour after Sultan Alam had passed up the same road. He claimed he hadn't run into the hawker or any other person, except a buggy which was going in the direction of Miner's Rest. Clark claims he had passed the Junction Hotel at about 11 or 12, reaching Ballarat at 1.30am, where he slept again in the sales yard. The police had found a few receipts in Sultan's possession and believed that he was carrying at least £10 at the time he was murdered. You might expect whoever had robbed him to be carrying this extra money, so Clark's spending history around this time was closely scrutinised. Clark claims he'd had £3 on him that Friday. He stated that he didn't own a handkerchief, except a spotted green one which did not resemble the one found at the scene. The following morning, he met with a foundry worker, Jim Trelaw, wearing, he claims, the same clothes that he had worn the evening before. Clark then cleaned himself up in town with a wash and shave, where exactly is disputed, although it's probably irrelevant for our purposes. He says that he caught the train to Creswick, where he met with someone called Eva May, who was possibly his girlfriend. She was pregnant, and he gave her 30 shillings. Clark said that it wasn't until Saturday evening that he read about the murder in the paper, The Echo. OK, so you can see why the police were interested in Thomas Clark. No steady means of employment, and by his own admission, he'd passed the Junction Hotel that night. What's more, Clark was friendly with the Pollocks. He'd eaten with them on the Sunday before the murder and had been in the yard about three times before, including on that Sunday. As Detective Dungy stated in the inquest, no one could account for his movements from when he left the Keynes Hotel to about 10am the next day. He effectively had no alibi. Clark was emphatic that he did not know, had never met or even seen Sultan Alam before. But there was a group of people at the Junction Hotel who definitely had. Well, this is the thing, like, how many people would have known he was sleeping in the barn? The family, who Just the family the and the lodger would have known Yeah, that sure. Fallahay guy, yeah. Yeah. Now, let's take a look at Fallahay. Cornelius Fallahay, a railway worker, had been lodging with Mrs Pollock and was with her when Salt and Alarm had showed up at the hotel looking for somewhere to crash for the night. Fallahay directed him to go to the back gate to pass through the stable and find a door to the barn. Fallahay says he saw the Indian hawker again when he came into the kitchen to collect boiling water for his tea. He claims he did not see the hawker again that night, but there was a witness who claimed that they had seen him. A farmer, Charles Wilson, was driving a cart of wheat at about 6.45am past the Junction Hotel when he claims to have seen Fallahay coming from the wood heap into the yard to the back door of the pub. There was smoke coming from the chimney of the hotel, 
Charles Wilson says that he recognised Fallahay, as he had previously seen him in the pub on a few occasions. However, in his deposition, Fallahay said, yes, he had been outside, but not until 7am. Before that, he claims he'd been in the kitchen. So, was Fallahay telling the truth, or had he in fact been lingering about the woodpile from at least 6.45am, if not before? Mrs Pollock testified that she was the first to have risen that day just before 7am. So now I'm just going to read out her testimony. On the 21st of March, I was up just before 7. I was the first up. Grace came out of her room just as I was going into the kitchen. I made the fire in the kitchen. I heard Fallahay go into the yard. Saw him pass the kitchen door. He passed the door before going out into the yard. I went out immediately into the woodpile for some more wood. I missed the axe when I got there. I gathered a few chips and came in again. Fallahay, I think, went in to wash at the stand on the back veranda. When I went out of the kitchen door, he was at the back veranda. Okay, so past the kitchen door. I'm guessing this means he went from the kitchen door into the yard. So we've got two different versions. Mrs Pollock's evidence that Fallahay had come through the house into the yard and on the veranda to wash himself and the farmers who claims to have seen him at 6.45am coming from the woodpile. But even if we accept the farmer's version, this doesn't prove that Fallahay had just come from the barn. And you might expect to see at least some blood on whoever killed Sultan. And nobody mentioned anything like this about Fallahay's appearance. So one thing the police didn't seem very interested in probing too hard was circumstances surrounding the Pollocks. Yeah, what do we know about Elizabeth, for example? We know that she had acquired the licence to the hotel about two years earlier in 1901. Uh, October 1902, she was fined for opening the bar on a Sunday. And I've got a quote from the sub-inspector. He says that the hotel was in a slovenly state and dirty and was unfit for the accommodation of travellers. Yeah, and what about Elizabeth's relationship to Fallahay? Well, she testified that he was no blood relation to her, but Fallahay did do occasional fencing work for her and sometimes tended the bar. Yeah, and we also found out that he was a father. Um, we dug up a newspaper article announcing that Frederick Thomas, the third son of Cornelius Fallahay, had been married at Ballarat in the following year, that's in 1904. And there's also an Ancestry.com profile for a Cornelius Fallahay uh, that we came across. Uh, it would make him 55 years old at the time of the murder, though, so... Kind of interesting. But yeah, we're not even sure that's our guy. We really don't know much about either of them. Could that be a motivation beyond money? As Hanifa explained, encounters between hawkers and their customers or the wider community weren't always purely commercial in nature. But you can imagine these young men sitting out, young, good-looking men, their imaginations on fire, um, and they were strong, physically strong. I saw many of these old men in their latter years when they were really old and bent and drawn over hookers in the mosque courtyards, those who hadn't had families here, drawing on their hookers, reminiscing, and, and yet they were gorgeous specimens of manhood. And uh, there were these, these young, um, young Errol Flynn types of guys, maybe a bit of Tyrone Power, these matinee idols of the time, and uh, there they were. So, um, yes, I think the ladies enjoyed their visits, even if the mums and dads kept them at bay. While Hanitha is talking about hawkers of the 1930s when her father was hawking, it's not hard to imagine that similar sorts of feelings may have been aroused at a much earlier time. Hawkers were typically young men who were either single or left their wives back home, and we know that marriages between hawkers, both Anglo settlers and particularly Aboriginal Australians, were not uncommon, even if they weren't really smiled upon. I'd be asking questions like, were there women in the house? What were the ages of the women? How handsome was this fellow? Yeah. In his mid-twenties, there aren't too many ugly Indian blokes around that age that I've ever come across. That's a really good question because it was... The innkeeper was a woman by herself and her two children. Yeah. Uh, with the lodger staying with them, so maybe it was, you know... Bit of hanky-panky, hanky-panky bit yeah. of je- jealousy going on. 
We don't have any evidence that the police inquiries ever went down this road. It's an intriguing theory, but without being able to pose these questions to witnesses long dead, it's something that, unfortunately, we'll never be able to explore ourselves. I've got to say, early on I was a bit sus on the lodge of Fallahay, and even Mrs Pollock. After all, they were the only ones who knew, without a doubt, where Sultan was sleeping. And Fallahay was seen outside at the right time of morning, and they had the opportunity to collaborate their stories. But this wasn't a view popular with everyone we spoke to. I don't think Fallahay had anything to do with the murder. Um, while he was reportedly on suspension um, from his fencing job with the, with the railway department, um, he had been staying at the Junction Hotel for a while, even helping out behind the bar at times. If his motive was to steal from Sultan, sneaking to the barn, going through his things, um, I find it odd that he just wouldn't choose to, you know, put a few coins in his pocket over the bar. Um, his only suit was sent to Melbourne for testing afterwards because he was a suspect, but all they found on it was jam. Um, so no blood, and given the crime scene and how it's been described, you'd expect if he was wearing his suit at the time that um, there would be a bit more evidence than, you know, his breakfast falling down the front of his shirt one morning. So, yeah, so this is what I discovered when I did a little bit more digging on Fallahay, uh, was that he actually sued the Ballarat Courier for libel because they published information about uh, the blood that had been, the, you know, the blood samples that had been tested in the lab and that and apparently he didn't want his kids to know about it. And he'd been, you know, heard by the newspaper um, journalist who was there talking to Detective Dungy saying, oh, I hope this information doesn't get, get out or doesn't get published because it would look bad. Uh, but the newspaper just printed it anyway. So, and the actually the only witness um, in that case was Elizabeth Pollock, and this was a couple of years later, or about a year later, I think. So, you know, Fallahay was pretty determined to have his name cleared. And as for Thomas Clark? Thomas Clark seems more likely than Fallahay to be the murderer, but I'm still not convinced. The police and the coroner were able to corroborate a lot of the evidence in relation to his movements around the time. Also, Clark was apparently a bit of a betting man. Um, one report said that he was more lucky in this endeavour than the ordinary individual. Um, so this could certainly explain any money that he, that he came into. But what did the police think? Early in the investigation, there appeared to be few leads. However, the police were anxious to track down one person, another Indian hawker named Jahala Singh. Newspapers reported Detective Dungy believed that Sultan may have been killed by someone who had followed him at a distance and tracked him to the barn. It was reported that Jahala Singh had left the town of Haddon, about 12 kilometres west of Ballarat, three days before Sultan Alam was murdered. Singh had expressed an intention to go to the Junction Hotel. A statement was put to the press, describing Jahala Singh as being 35 years of age, well-built, being 5 foot and 11 inches in height, wearing a white turban, dark grey tweed coat, a vest and moleskin trousers. Detective Dungy had further reasons to suspect that another hawker was involved. He'd received reports of some bad feelings within the local hawking community due to accusations that had been laid against one hawker by another. In September the previous year, the hawker Nigaru Khan had been charged with committing an unnatural offence against another hawker named Abraham. What exactly happened is a bit of a mystery because relevant court documents have not been preserved and the newspaper refused to print any of the details. As you might guess, unnatural offence then meant sexual contact between people of the same sex, usually men. Of course, this contact wasn't necessarily non-consensual in all cases, but it was an offence purely because such contact was illegal at the time. Papers reported that a doctor, Dr Lindsay, had examined Abraham and believed that an assault had taken place. Nigarun Khan was tried but then acquitted. His accuser, Abra, was then tried for perjury for providing false statements. He was allegedly seen making threats against Nigarun Khan over a dispute involving the purchase of some goods. Abra was alleged to have said, I will make him lose £100. I'll make trouble for him and spoil him. Interestingly, though, the perjury charges were also dropped. The affair was said to have caused such a stir among hawkers that police brought in extra constables to watch over things and threats of murder were freely made. Exactly how Sultan Alam, or the wanted hawker Jahala Singh, might have been connected to the affair is unknown. 
However, Detective Dungy believed that revenge was a possible motive for the murder. Could another hawker have been involved? Hawkers had their own networks and established routes and could well have known that the Junction Hotel offered respite for a weary hawker traveller. For Mark, in some respects, this wasn't such a bad theory. While I'm not convinced about the revenge motive, um, I think another hawker killing Sultan is a possibility. Um, there was apparently quite a population of hawkers based in Ballarat. They had a sort of a headquarters. Um, I imagine there could be just uh, a healthy business rivalry between a number of them. Um, while it might have been revenge for a particular, a particular act, it could certainly be taking care of the competition um, in the very extreme of ways. In this instance, at least, ultimately the police were to be disappointed. After a week of searching, they finally tracked down Jahala Singh and he was detained in the nearby district of Willanobrina. Jahala had told police that three days before the murder, he had travelled westwards, which was not in the direction of the Junction Hotel. They were able to verify his movements. At the request of Detective Dungy, the initial inquest had been adjourned until just over a month later because police didn't have many leads. They'd been hopeful that finding Jahala would turn up some promising evidence. However, when the coronial inquest recommenced on the 28th of May, the prospects of solving the case looked bleak. As Detective Joseph Rogerson testified, we've been unable to get any definitive information or evidence against any person. It was one time of the year when the, the Muslim hawkers gave themselves a holiday. That was during Ramadan, or Ramadan as it's sometimes called, where they would come in from uh, the country, country routes and for 30 days as they were fasting, they would stay in Melbourne. Idul Fitra, which marks the end of Ramadan, has long been an important celebratory event for Muslim Australians. It was an auspicious event for Hanifa's family in another way too. And the Eid celebrations would be lovely. As a matter of fact, that's how my dad um, met my mum um, at one of these um, um, Eid ceremonies. There weren't women there, so the younger men did the serving and taking the halvas, the sweets, the tea around. And my mum was there, my now a um, a woman in her teens, and she wondered why she was the only one not getting a cup of tea. Everyone else was being served. And later my, my dad admitted to her that his hand was shaking so much that he thought he'd spill it over her. So, so that was a, a love, love at first sight between a hawker and a hawker's daughter. In between solitary stretches on the road, hawkers would band together, not only to celebrate and observe religious holidays, but to help each other out on matters of business. And my mother, she used to help the men with their accounts because they couldn't read or write and, and they were a bit of, at a bit of a loss, so she would help them. And she, she told me one lovely story where um, her Kashmiri father had hawked in, in um, Victoria in the 1890s. And um, she even helped some of her father's friends read their accounts. And one poor man had been hoodwinked by a barmaid at a country pub because instead of recording her debts for goods received, she had written down the words to a popular song. Mm. Poor bugger. <laughs> Turning back to Sultan's case, things had been at risk of going quiet altogether when in August the newspapers had picked up on a new development. A sensational development in connection with the murder of the Indian hawker, Sultan Alam, at Miner's Rest a few months ago, occurred today. At the time of the arrest of Fassad, it was stated in the advertiser that Detective Dungy suspected that he might have been involved in the Miner's Rest affair. Nothing more was heard about it until this morning when Dungy arrived unexpectedly from Melbourne with Facade, whom he lodged at the local jail. The greatest secrecy is being observed, and even the local detectives haven't been acquainted with the object of Dungy's action. Bendigo Advertiser, 14th of August, 1903, Ballarat. 
On the 5th of July 1903, Detective Dungy, accompanied by Senior Constable Faulkner and two Aboriginal trackers identified only as Tommy and Tony, attended a residence in Skye, near the present-day outer Melbourne suburb of Cranbourne. They found 19 chickens roaming about the property in a state of near starvation. They fed them corned beef, pumpkin and a loaf of bread, which appeared to revive them. The previous day, William Ford, a widower in his mid-60s, had been found dead in his kitchen from what appeared to be five bullet wounds. The police were pretty much certain that he had met his end by foul play. The following day, police attended the camp of a group of rabbit trappers who had claimed they had been robbed of several items. While attending the camp, a man named Cotard came up to the police and said that last week he had met a man with distinctive long sideburns who had seemed very peculiar to him. The person in question was Charles Fassard, a French national of New Caledonia. He was picked up by the police and Dungy met him at the Cranbourne police lockup. While Fossard had said that he could speak English, Dungy waited for Detective Burgett to arrive, who spoke French, before taking Fossard out to the residence of Mr Heath, which was half a mile from the deceased Ford's house in Skye. Mr Heath identified Fossard as the man he had encountered on the 28th of March, the day the police believed Ford was killed. The police, the Aboriginal trackers and Fossard then went to the deceased property. It was here that Fossard allegedly confessed to murdering William Ford. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead a bit here. At the coroner's inquest, the coroner found that Fassard had willfully killed William Ford and he was committed to stand trial on the 17th of August. Papers reported that a few days before Fassard was to stand trial, while transporting him from Melbourne to Cranbourne, Detective Burgett, at the suggestion of Dungy, told Fassard that an Indian hawker had been murdered near Ballarat. Fassard told the detectives, and we're quoting from the Ballarat Star... I was in Ballarat one evening, and I called at the hotel a little way from there, and the publican asked me to help him carry a man to the stable at the rear of the hotel. The man was bleeding and insensible. I stayed in the stable a little while, and then went to a haystack some little distance away. I then got frightened, and cleared off, and lit a fire, and camped for the night. The papers further reported that according to a statement prepared by Dungy, the police drove Fassard to Ballarat. On approaching the Junction Hotel, Fassard remarked, This is where the Indian was murdered. The detectives had not said anything about the murder that day or why they had asked him to accompany them. Fassard was taken round to the east side of the hotel on the miners' rest road and on entering the yard, Dungy said to Fassard, you lead the way into the barn. Fassard then opened the gate and went straight to the door on the south side and the stable which is a lean on to the barn. Having entered it, he turned quickly between the stalls to the door leading into the barn. On entering, he looked round in surprise, and the detectives noticed that since they were there in March, it had been greatly changed. Whilst looking around in surprise, Fassard continued walking towards the northeast of the barn until he arrived at the spot where the Indian's dead body was found. He was asked if that was where the Indian was killed, and he replied, yes. Then he proceeded to explain how the body was lying. He said the head was against the wall, and the feet pointing straight out towards the stable. His back was lying towards the double door. He said he had a large white bundle and pointed to a spot where he said it was lying. Asked if he killed him, he replied, yes, and went on to say he struck him over the head with an axe. It was reported that Fassad could recall other details too, where the wood heap had been in the yard and that he had taken 10 pounds from Sultan with him and some papers, which he claimed he'd burned. At this point, Fassard appeared to to realise that the the detectives detectives were trying to pump him and said, I did not murder him. If you like to say I did, you will have to prove it. Dungy said, Well, you can't deny having been here, and you know every spot. Fassard said that he camped near the Bali Sheaf Hotel at a site which was verified by the hotel owner. At 3am, he left the spot and after pausing at the water trough for a few minutes, proceeded to make his way on foot to Melbourne. Dungy and Burgett prepared a written statement, which Fassard signed. Afterwards, Fassard said he was only gassing, which is slang for joking, when he'd said that he had hit the man with an axe and taken away the papers. He did, however, stand by his statement that he was in the vicinity at 7.30pm on the night preceding the murders and at 3 o'clock the next morning. 
But aside from Frosted's reaction, there's further reason to be concerned about the veracity of his confession to murdering Sultan Alam. So Charles Fassard is a pretty interesting character. Um, his admission notes um, on his arrival at Jay Ward at the Ararat Asylum sort of give you a bit of an insight into his, into his mental health. He was unable to say why he had murdered the man out near Danny Nong, um, but he said he was under the influence of a otherworldly being uh, who lived up in the clouds. Uh, he was a native of New Caledonia as well, a place that he said his mother owned almost half of, and that he also had lots of money, at four million, I guess, pounds at the time, stashed away in his belly. So, yeah, his mental state, you can probably make some assumptions about. Following his arrest for the Cranbourne murder, Fassard made three different statements. The version put forward by the prosecution was that Fassard had shot forward with a pea rifle, that he had stolen from the camp of one of the rabbit trappers, and that he had stolen a pair of boots from Ford's house. Police uncovered the barrel and the lock of a pea shooter rifle from a paddock where Fassard had said that he had burned them. A few feet away, they also found two cartridge shells and a melted bullet. The bullet taken from the camp matched the bullet taken from Ford's body and fit with the barrel of the recovered pea shooter. The rabbit trapper also confirmed that the pea shooter was the same type as that which had been stolen from him. Fassard was committed to stand trial, but before the prosecution's versions of events could even be tested, the jury had to determine whether or not he was of sound mind. Evidence was provided by doctors and other medical professionals who had examined Fassard. Newspapers reported that at trial and in the dock, Fassard appeared to not understand much of what was going on around him and gazed about in a dull, apathetic manner. Without even retiring, the jury found Fassard unable to plea and he was ordered to be detained at the pleasure of the governor. photo that's in the inquest of the like it's dungy with probably like the Pollock kids in front of the barn like just posing in front of the scene of the crime the fellow with the bike he's sitting there with his nice hat on and yeah I love that picture it's yeah. great you imagine now like crime scene photos and there's a detective just poking his head in or something yeah it's a bit photo weird a photo that Mark was referring to, which you can see on our website, points to conduct that was very much of its time. It was taken during a period in which acceptable behaviour in terms of showing respect for victims and families were very different. I mean, we're talking about a time when arranging for post-mortem photos of departed family members and loved ones was still fashionable. But what about police behaviour and tactics when it came to the rights of suspects? In the case of Sultan Alam, did Dungy take extra care to ensure that Fassad understood what he was confessing to? And was any undue pressure involved? So, Lee, I think it's probably a good idea we talk about the newspaper article from 1914 that we found. Dungy's basically being asked to justify his actions, and it's called the third degree. They basically wanted to see why the Sultan's murder hadn't really been closed off properly. Um, and they brought up the whole facade thing again, um, as though, you know, later on they could say that he was responsible. You know, it's kind of like he's backing himself up. Yeah, yeah, like he's finding the evidence now for his actions at the time. So it's really justifying it. Like he's like, oh, you know, and there's quotes here saying, like, I immediately knew it was him. And, and you know, his whole kind of justification, well, the, the main one is that he's saying, oh, well, I didn't want to prejudice the Ford case against him. So I just didn't bring it up. Like, oh, you know, I'm doing him a bit of a favour. I'm doing it in the interest of justice rather than it fitting in neatly. Obviously, coercion is not mentioned. No, not at all. And, and this is the thing, like, you just don't know what measures were taken to protect um, Facade in this. No. Probably not a lot. <laughs> this sounds like this article's more about Dungy protecting himself. In the newspaper article, which you can read on our website, Detective Dungy talks about how Fossard was a sexual deviant and links this to his guilt. However, he fails to mention that this was a detail he picked up later on from his mental health record. Dungy also fails to mention any of the other details on the record about how Fossard was delusional. Mark has his own thoughts on the whole issue. When I was researching this story, I got the feeling that Dungy wanted to close his case 
and Facade was delusional enough to confess to a crime he didn't commit. So it was a pretty good, it was like a match made in heaven, pretty much. Reports at the time in the Argus um, after Sultan's murder were pretty detailed. Uh, they described the size of the barn. They described the distance from the back wall where the body was found. They mentioned the axe and where it was located in the woodpile outside. We know from Fassard's prison record that he could read and write, so it's not out of the question that Fassard has, has read about the murder in the newspaper and thought, oh, well, I'm going away for one murder. Why not get a bit more attention and, and confess to another? It's definitely an interesting theory, and the newspapers did go into extensive detail about how the body was found. There was collaborative evidence from the hotel owner that Fassard was there in the vicinity on the night Sultan was murdered. But so was Thomas Clark, and arguably Clark, being a local and friendly with the Pollocks, would have known that the barn was a place where travellers regularly slept. Sure, Fassard was a proven opportunistic thief, he seemingly killed a man for his boots. But unless Fassad had some special knowledge, which he never confessed to, he would have been pretty lucky to simply chance upon a sleeping hawker in a barn. Dungy certainly had a reputation to uphold as a first-rate detective, and an unsolved murder would have been a blight on his rate of clearance. But what other factors might have come into it? Why wasn't he held to account for his lack of probing? There were parliamentary debates in the 1901 and 1903 referring uh, to the practice of hawking in, in a very non-complimentary way, I quote, for being neither honest nor productive labour. That's what one parliamentarian said. And uh, they called the Syrian hawkers, sometimes that was a name for all hawkers, um, accused them of assuming threatening and menacing attitudes and, I quote here, forcing poor women to buy their goods. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, yes, the poor old sinister hawkers forced poor country women to take credit and compelled them to take up to a year to pay for a, a bill of one shilling for a pair of baby's booties and a, and a yard of elastic. My, what villains they were. As Hanifa explained, during the 1890s and 1900s, there was a palpable degree of social and political anxiety about hawkers. Many papers were particularly hostile, describing them as, and I'm quoting here, dirty Hindus and as pests who use insulting language to hustle their goods. What's more, only a few years before, in 1901, Australia had introduced the Immigration Restriction Act, also known as the White Australia Policy. We've talked about the White Australia Policy before in the episode Melbourne on Strike and how it restricted the immigration of non-whites to Australia. But it also impacted upon Indian hawkers who were already living here. That's right, because I suppose with the introduction of the White Australia Policy, a lot of um, the traders couldn't, if they went back home then they couldn't return. I think that was one of the impacts. Is that your findings as well? Or? Before 1901, men did go backwards and forwards more than we realised. They'd hop on a steamship, go home for a, a wedding, a funeral or something like that, particularly as, as they were uh, the eldest son and they had that duty, that responsibility. But you're right, after 1901, the doors were closed and it was much harder for them to gain, gain re-entry um, because Australia made that quite clear. For Indian Australians, an identity document called the Certificate Exempting the Dictation Test was created in order to regulate their movements and that of other Asiatics already living in Australia. It required a photograph of them, a description of the holder and the taking of handprints. The holder had to provide character references from members of the European community and police checked with their references and made inquiries into their activities and financial standing. Requests for the admission of the family members was often shot down by the colonial authorities. It was in this climate that the investigation of Sultan's murder was taking place. An investigation which was closed on the basis of police evidence. Evidence which could never be tested in court because Fassad was not fit to stand trial. Oh, it was an easy it's way of solving a case, solving wasn't it? it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think Miss Marple would have liked that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's fascinating and you kind of wonder... I don't think they were really interested. They were not interested in it. There's no reason, given the, the 
times and so on, this itinerant bloke who shouldn't have been here in the first place. Who really cared? No relatives knocking on their doors, no letters to the editor, nothing like that happening. No, I, 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 can, I can take that with a big dose of cynicism. Fassad served his sentence in J-Ward, prison for the criminally insane at Ararat Prison. The notorious criminal Mark Chopper Reed wrote about Fassad's time in his autobiography, describing him as a poor bastard and J-Ward as a terrible place. According to Chopper, who served two weeks there only a few years after Fassad's death, the conditions were such that people slept on the concrete floor. Sultan Alam was not the only hawker who was murdered in Australia, although most hawkers who died of unnatural causes were as a result of suicide. Others lived prosperous lives, some moving away from hawking to build their own small businesses or embark on other professions. Others married locally or manoeuvred through the strict immigration requirements to bring their wives and families over. Hanitha's own grandmother carried her unborn father to Australia, hidden underneath the folds of her burqa. Her grandfather skillfully navigated the many bureaucratic hurdles to secure her admission. But most hawkers started their journey alone, and many finished that way. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with editing, research and co-production by Lee Hooper. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien, who also provided production support. Connor Gallagher was our voice actor, and our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body, and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. 